All right, we are in the book of Obadiah, so you can turn there, and we will dig into the Word. Starting in verse 5, it says, If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out, and your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by, by slaughter. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for the privilege of gathering with the saints today to sing your praises, to hear your word, to fellowship with the saints. We pray, God, that you would help us to understand what you want to speak to us today. Fill us with your spirit to hear rightly. The natural man can't understand the things of God. Make us the spiritual men that you want us to be, the spiritual people, Lord, to hear from you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is true. And let, let every man be a liar, but God is true. We thank you that you are true. We thank you for the truth you've given us in your word. We stand firm upon it, Lord. Bless our time now as we continue on for your glory. Amen. All right, here in Obadiah, we get a real look at what God's judgment is regarding the Edomites. And that, that judgment actually gives us a glimpse of what Judgment Day will one day be like. And it's a warning uh, for others, but also for us, that one day we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. One day we will all be called to account for our sins. Any judgment of God that we see, it foreshadows the great day of judgment, and it, shall serve as a wa- it should serve as a wake-up call to make sure that, hey, where am I at with the Lord And am I walking in the ways that he wants? Have I repented of my sin? Am I in right relationship with him? Do I even have a relationship with the Lord? So any judgment of God foreshadows the great day of judgment and is a warning for us. There was a Supreme Court justice back in the mid-1800s, and he once informed uh, a man uh, who appeared before him in the lower court, and he was getting off on a technicality. He said, I know that you are guilty, and you know it. And I wish you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge and that there you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to law. See, sometimes there's a difference between justice and law. We can have just laws, but we can also have unjust laws, right? We can have just judges, and we can also have unjust judges, God's word makes clear to us that one day, every wrong, every single wrong, will be addressed. Everything will be made right, and it will come directly from his hand. So when Obadiah begins in verse 1, it it just starts out the vision of Obadiah, and then God speaks through Obadiah and lays out 
what this judgment is going to be against them. But I want to notice in verses 2 through 4, here is the key. Who is going to judge Edom? It's the Lord, right? It's the Lord. Look what he says in verse 2. I will make you small among the nations. Who's the I? It's Yahweh, right? And in verse 4, from there I will bring you down. So God wants to make it clear to us that the judgment which will come upon Edom is from his hand. Now, are we going to find out how he's going to do it? Yep. But the judgment is from God, and he wants to leave no doubt about that. Scripture makes clear over and over again that God is the judge. Not man, but God ultimately is the judge. And Scripture makes clear that God will judge all. He's going to judge all. No one escapes the judgment. 2 Corinthians talks about we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. People might temporarily escape judgment on this earth, but not forever. Someday, every person, you, me, all of us, every single one of us, we will appear before the Lord to account for the things done in the flesh. So God puts this at the beginning of Obadiah to make a point, and the point is this, God is sovereign. He is in control over the affairs of men. He rules all. Keep replacing Obadiah because we're going to be coming back. But look at Psalm chapter 20, verse, uh, Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 28. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. So he's ruling over the nations. And psalm after psalm reemphasizes this point to us, that God is in control of the affairs of men, that he is sovereign over all. Look at Psalm chapter 47. Verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So he's reigning over the nations. We get this imagery of him sitting on his holy throne. And what is he doing? He's judging. He's ruling. He's exercising dominion. So God rules the nations, and he raises up nations, but guess what? He not only raises them up, he takes them down. Daniel chapter 2, turn there. This is after God reveals uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel and the interpretation with it. Daniel 2, verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Now think about that for a moment. Here's Daniel thanking the Lord for revealing the dream and the interpretation to him. And what king 
is he under? Nebuchadnezzar, right? Like this horrible, horrible, horrible king. And yet, what does he say? Verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Even King Nebuchadnezzar couldn't rule but by God placing him there. So he raises up nations and he takes them down. If God rules at such a high level, think about this. If God rules at such a high level, then certainly he can rule over your little life, right? And my little life. And the little sphere that you live in. So what does that mean for us? That means we can quit our quibbling, right? We can quit our trembling. We can take a deep breath. And we can realize that whatever situation that we are dealing with, God has it. Okay? He's sovereign over it. He'll walk with you through it. He will come through victorious. So God puts kings in their places. He puts presidents in their position. When President uh, Trump was uh, elected, you know, we heard different people saying, oh, Trump is God's man, Trump is God's man. Well, God appointed Trump uh, just as much as he appointed Obama or Biden or any other president in the history of the United States. Think about this for a moment. Was King Saul chosen by God? I mean, rather directly, right? If you know the story. What, but, but how'd that story turn out? Not, not so well, right? Not, not for Saul, at least. What about King Solomon? Was he chosen by God? Yes, right? Even his heart astray, but God placed him there. So I think when we talk about God appointing different men, yet, I mean, did God use Trump? Sure. But did he use Obama? Sure. Is he using Biden? Sure. Maybe not sometimes the way we might hope or wish, but we don't know the ways of the Lord, friends. We know what's revealed clearly, but we don't know the secret ways, as Deuteronomy 29 talks about. His revealed ways and his unrevealed, if you want to call it that. His secret ways. So the Lord uses each one however he sees fit. Every single country, every single nation, from the beginning of time until now. Some the Lord might use to do a mighty work of God. Some he might use to bring discipline upon that nation or other nations. That's what he does in the Old Testament. We see that with King uh, Sennacherib, right? He uses him. He uses the Assyrians to discipline the northern kingdom of Israel. He uses the Babylonians to discipline the southern kingdom of Israel. But he's using those nations however he pleases. Someday, whether they do it now or do it later, every one of those people, every one of those nations, every one of those kings will bow down to King Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Any person in a position of power wielding his authority unjustly will receive a greater judgment. To whom much is given, much is required. That's why James says, let not many of you want to be teachers, right? For why? You will receive the greater judgment. If you're in positions of, of whatever authority you might have, maybe that's in your home as a mom or a dad. Maybe that's at, at your work and you have employees under you. Maybe that's at your church and you have, you're in a church office as a pastor or a deacon. Whatever position, whatever position, whatever position, God's placed you there to influence people, to influence others, to shine your light into those positions, and he's given you an authority to use to be a blessing. 
not to be a curse, to be wielded justly, not to be yielded unjustly. But you will be called to account for whatever, 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 whatever you've been given. So verses 2 through 4 show us God is the judge of all and declares judgment on Edom. Then verses 5 through 9 show us how it's going to happen and what it looks like. Back in Obadiah, verse 8, it says, Will I not on that day? Well, what day is that? Well, for them, it's, it's their day of judgment. Not in the eschatological sense of the great day of judgment, but they had a day appointed on this earth for them to be judged for what they did to Israel. Will I not on that day? A day of judgment is coming for them. Now, they'll face the day of judgment, well, that now in hindsight and, and, and in, in the history past, they already faced it, but they're also going to face the great day of judgment before the Lord, as we all will. What was going on? What is the Lord placing at their feet here? Well, verse 5 uh, asks basically a rhetorical question. If thieves came to you, if plunderers by night, would they steal not only enough for themselves? Thieves only take what is valuable. Okay? I don't think most of us have had our homes broken into. Some of you might. I know people that have had their homes broken into. I mean, what do they take? The valuable stuff, right? I mean, they don't take uh, the little coaster on the side table, right? And they don't take the little throw pillows on your sofa. But, <clears throat> but, but God is saying for the judgment of Edom, look, even the thieves don't leave everything, but guess what's going to happen? You're going to be completely pillaged and destroyed. Every little thing will be taken from you. Everything. Then he goes on in verse 5. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? Now, if you know your Old Testament, right, you know when they had to leave the edges of the field for, for, so that the poor could come along and do their gleaning. If anything fell while they were harvesting, they, weren't allowed, they had to leave it there, right? And they basically weren't supposed to pick over the tree completely or the bush or whatever the fruit or vegetable was. Why so? It was, like a, it was, it was to, to provide for others, to basically to encourage a generous heart. He's saying, here, if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave the gleaning? Like, they're going to leave some behind. But not so you, Edom. Not so you. So we get this, uh, this what's called a prophetic perfect here, because it, it talks about it in verse 6 in the past tense, how Esau has been pillaged. It's not something that has happened yet, but God is saying, it's so certain I'm guaranteeing it will come to pass. It's called the prophetic perfect in, in Hebrew. So Edom turned on Israel at their time of need. What's the result? Well, we see it in verses 6 through 9. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. So the result of Edom turning on Israel is that they're going to be completely plundered, and then this is how it's going to look for them. They despised Israel, they turned against her, and now, essentially total annihilation. Verse 7, Edom is being set up to fail and doesn't even realize it. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They are being deceived. They think they're high and mighty. Think back to verses 2 and 4. Because of their position, they think they can't be knocked down. And what happens? 
They believe the nations are friendly with them. Meanwhile, forces are at work to undermine them and conquer them. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding, meaning you don't even know what's coming. They're getting set up and they don't even realize it. So what are the things that they lose? Well, they lose quite a few things. The first is wealth. Everything is taken from them. They've been pillaged. Their treasures have been taken. But it's a, a, it's a total, every last little grain is taken from them. There's nothing left. They've basically been raised to the ground. So their wealth is taken. Their allies, verse 7, betray them. So they lose their allies. They get duped and tricked. Now in the ancient Near East, listen to me, the ancient Near East, like nations related themselves to one another, like the regional ones, these smaller powers would kind of make factions. You could even really call them covenants that they would make with one another. Uh, so that when the Assyrians came or the Babylonians came or the Egyptians came, that they could potentially band together and help each other out. I mean, we kind of have things like that today. You know, if, if certain countries get attacked, then the U.S. is basically like, yeah, we'll be there with you. At least we say that, right? <clears throat> That's kind of the idea. So they had allies, and even this term peace here gives the idea clearly that covenants had been made with others. Even probably Israel had come to some terms of peace with Edom and had a mutual agreement that they wouldn't attack one another. So they're betraying the own terms of the covenant that they set. One author said what was common to the covenantal relationship was this mutual faithfulness to one another. So these covenant partners are to show commitment to each other, whether the relationship is coerced or, or voluntary. And so here, Edom has betrayed that completely with Israel. So her punishment, Edom's punishment, is to suffer such covenant betrayal herself. And Israel made covenants. They weren't necessarily supposed to, but they did make covenants with other surrounding groups or nations. It appears with the Midianites, if you remember the story of, of Moses and his father-in-law, the Gibeonites, again, they were, the Israelites were duped and tricked, if you remember the story with Joshua, right? But they did make an, a covenant which they ended up honoring. Remember, the Gibeonites get attacked. What does Israel do? Comes to the rescue, right? Now, they could have been like, oh, our problem's solved. We're just going to let the Gibeonites be annihilated. We made that foolish covenant without seeking the Lord. No, they stick to their word, and they, that's how important the covenant was. So for Edom to break it was a, was a grave violation. So they lose, they lose their allies. They lose their wealth. And then notice two more things that they lose. They lose their wisdom. In verse 8, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom. Now, if you really know your Bible well, you'll know someone from the Old Testament who was considered wise from Edom. It was one of Job's friends, one of his three friends. It talks about, actually, we'll just look at it so you can see it for yourself. Job chapter 2.
Job 2, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite. Well, Teman was one of the big cities in Edom. So here comes Job's friend, Eliphaz from Edom, who was supposed to have some wisdom that he supposedly tried to share with Job, didn't go so well for him. But God confounds brothers and sisters. He confounds even the greatest wisdom. Think about when Daniel is betrayed, sorry, when David is betrayed by his own son, Absalom. And then his counselor, his like right-hand man for his counsel ends up betraying him as well, Ahithophel, right? And do you remember what David prays when Ahithophel abandons him and, and goes back with Absalom? He's like, Lord, confound the wisdom of Ahithophel and make it look like foolishness. And so then Ahithophel comes and Absalom's like, hey, what should we do? And he actually gives like some really good wisdom. And that's the plan that they should have followed. But what happens? Ahithophel's like, okay, or uh, Absalom's like, thank you, Ahithophel. Um, All my buddies and friends, what do y'all think we should do? Like all the young stupid ones, okay? And what does he do? Listens to his young stupid ones. It's really, and the whole plan derails, right? But really, what's God doing? He's answering the prayer of David, confounding the wisdom of Ahithophel. So God confounds even the greatest, greatest wisdom. That's what he does here. The wisdom is taken out. And then the strength, the military is overthrown. Look at verse 9. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So in other words, they lose everything. It's all taken. What's left? Nothing. Really what we're talking about here is the utter demise of the Edomites. And one application is this. Don't mess with God's people. I mean, truly. Like, God doesn't like his children to be messed with. Does he allow it? Yes, for a season. Will he deal with it? Yes, rather bluntly and straightforward. But here's for us. The Edomites, I mean, this was the the judgment against them, and it came to pass. It did happen. We'll look at that in the future weeks. But what about us? We're going to be judged someday. What's that going to look like? And what about us warning others about the judgment to come for them? Because a lot of times, the way we interact with others, it's more of like a go in peace, be warm, be filled. We're kind of like the man in James, you know? Someone comes in need, and what do we say? Oh, be blessed, be blessed, go in peace, even though they're in need. Well, guess what? Everyone who doesn't know Jesus, they have a spiritual need. That's really their greatest need, right? I mean, their greatest need, and they're coming to us. And we need to be careful that we're not just being like, oh, be blessed, be warm and filled. I hope it all works out for you. No, we, because of what we've been given, out of love, out of mercy, out of grace, should want to share with them as well. We don't want to say, as Jeremiah quotes some of the false prophets, we don't want to say peace, peace, when there is no peace. Right? 
So God deals with sin. He deals with our sin. He deals with other people's sin. But here's my question. If that's the case, why is there so little preaching against sin in the churches? Well, one, people don't want to hear it. I mean, let's just be honest. If I asked you all to make a list of different topics you wanted me to preach on, (laughs) would you really list the top three sins that maybe you're struggling with? Probably not. Okay, right? People don't want to be told they're wrong. You know, give the people what they want. So people don't want to hear it. Um, They don't want to lose people. The leadership doesn't want to lose people. That's one reason. They don't want to be, they don't want to offend. Like, who doesn't want to be liked, right? Got to be winsome. And, and honestly, the church leadership might not just care. Because if you think about it, um, if you really care about something, you address it, right? Right? And if you really love people, you're going to give them the hard truths that you really feel they need to hear. So sin is a big deal. We can't brush it aside. We can't ignore it. I guess another reason is they might not have a great theology, potentially. I mean, to me, understanding how serious sin is was very key to understanding my relationship with the Lord. Because when you realize how serious it is, you realize where you stand before the Lord and how much you truly need a Savior. If you have like a light view of sin and you're, oh, what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about that sin? What's the big deal about that sin? Then it, it's like, do you really understand like why Jesus had to die for you? Why his sin, why your sins were placed on him? So why no preaching? For some of those reasons. Ironically, what do people want when we talk about you know, people's desires, they want, they want this type of judgment on everyone but themselves. They want the Edoms out there to be judged, but are they ready to be judged by the very same standard that they want others to be judged by? They want justice. Ironically, they don't want to be told they're wrong, but at the same time, they want justice, which means not only being told you're wrong, but actually doing something about the wrong that's been done. So everyone clamors for it. What did the crowd shout regarding Jesus? Right? Crucify him, right? Crucify him. Cruci- over and over, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They wanted justice. Well, be careful what you ask for, because what did they go on to tell Pilate? His blood be on us and our children. And truly, it was. So people don't always realize that judgment comes with justice. The two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. But the justice that many people want is not a biblical justice. They want a false justice. They want mob justice. They want social justice. Those aren't biblical. When God talks about justice, he doesn't qualify it with adjectives. It's justice. Period. Justice. No modifiers. Justice. But the world wants to define justice the way they want it to look. 
And when you redefine words to mean something else, guess what? You lose all significance of that word and you distort the truth as to what God is conveying. So Edom here is the target of divine wrath. Is this justice? Yes. God is a just God who rules in justice. Look at Psalm 89. Verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. First, notice what's the foundation of his throne? Righteousness and justice. But how beautiful it is that in the very next phrase, what do we get? God's covenantal love, his steadfast love, the Hebrew word hesed there. His hesed love and his faithfulness go before you. So yes, he's just and righteous, but he's also a faithful and loving and merciful God. What's the answer when we talk about ourselves for justice and judgment? It's really one word, brothers and sisters. It's one word, repent. That's what it is when it comes for us, repent. Because guess what? Judgment comes to all. But God makes it clear that what did he do with his own son? Pour out his wrath upon his own son. Why? So that the wrath for us could be averted. He took the payment and the punishment. Look at Colossians chapter 1. This is talking about Jesus, Colossians 1. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What kind of peace is he making? Is that a subjective peace or an objective peace? Because a lot of times people want subjective peace. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, I like fe- feeling peaceful. But something's way more important than feeling subjectively peaceful, and that's having objective peace with God himself. How is that accomplished? It tells us right here, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ's crucifixion made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. We were enemies of God, and guess what enemies need? They need to surrender. Guess what enemies need? They need peace. Okay? You, it doesn't matter if two, if, two, if two nations are at war. I mean, they can feel subjectively peaceful all they want, individually. Is that going to help them out? No. The missiles are still firing. The guns are still being, the triggers are still being pulled on the guns. No, they need an objective peace where they come to terms, and one of them surrenders, or there's some type of peace treaty. Guess what the terms of surrender are for us? 
what are the terms? Repent, right? It's surrender. There's no, uh, there's no um, coming together and God says, well, I'll do X, Y, and Z, and, and then you do. No, like God's already done it, and we can accept it or we can't. Here's the terms. Do you want them? Bend the knee. Repent of your sin. The judgment is coming. He judged Israel, his own children. Guess what? We will be judged if we don't have the blood of Christ. We will be judged. Every person here, everyone hearing this, you have to have Jesus, else you will not escape the judgment. That much is true. But God himself provided a way. Back to the, the Psalms verse, right? There's that hesed love and the faithfulness, but he's also just. We want that. That is a beautiful picture. He's going to mete out the judgment as it is required, as he himself sees fit. We're going to look at that in the future weeks of what does that look like exactly? What is real justice? But he is going to mete it out exactly as he sees fit. And guess what? In his mercy and love, he provided a way through his son and only through his son for the wrath to be averted from you. Okay? He didn't just say, oh, I won't do it. No, he still did it. He just did it on his son instead of you. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he wanted to provide a way out. He sent his son on a rescue mission for you. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near so back in verse 13 it says uh, christ you who once were far off and brought near brought near where i mean back to the father you've been brought near and, and here the imagery is like you're coming into the inner part of the temple <clears throat> but how is that done by the blood of that little goat of that little lamb of some bull? No. It's only possible through the blood of Christ. That's what it says. By the blood of Christ. Again, all throughout here, there's that word peace. We don't want that to be subjective, brothers and sisters. We want it to be objective. We don't want it to be on, on how we might feel on a particular day. We want it to be on an objective truth that God set forth before the beginning of time. And that's what he is. And here we, it says, verse 14, Jesus himself is our peace, right? Without Jesus, I know there's that little thing, you know, no Jesus, no peace, and then N-O Jesus, you know, no Jesus, no peace. Well, I mean, it's actually true, right? It's a little pithy saying, but it's true. But he's our peace, why? Because without Jesus, we can't be reconciled to the Father. Without Jesus, we're still dead in our sins. We're still covered in them. 
No, we, we're either covered in our sins or we're going to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. Which one? Well, choose the blood of the Lamb, please. Okay, God's going to look at us and He's going to judge us. He's going to either see our sins covering us or is he, He's going to see the blood of the Lamb covering us. That's the atonement. Think all the way back to the Passover. What did they need to do? What did they need to do to escape the angel of death? They had to kill the lamb, right? And then what did they have to do? You know, spread the blood, right? Over the door, essentially. Around the door. They had to be covered in it. Why? That angel came to come through that door. He saw the blood. He moved on. The blood was enough. Guess what? It's a glorious thing that the blood of Jesus is enough for our sins. And here's the thing. Jesus can forgive any and every sin. Any and every sin. You name it, Jesus can forgive it. What's he looking for? He's looking for repentance, right? He's looking for repentance. He's looking for you to come before him, humble yourself, and seek forgiveness. But he can forgive any sin, adultery, murder, and on and on. Any person serving a life sentence for some heinous crime, that sin can be forgiven. If that person repents and truly comes to Jesus, any person on death row, their sin can be forgiven. Do you believe that? You know, when, when my, my dad came to live with us, and, and I shared with him over the years, he wasn't a believer. <clears throat> and that was one of the things that he could not wrap his mind around it was that, that God would forgive the worst of the worst of the worst. But the truth is, we're the worst of the worst of the worst. Amen. That's the truth. So we look at, yeah, that person on death row who killed 15 people, and we're like, yeah, I'm nowhere close to that. Well, if you had to put a scale and kind of compare yourself, and, and God was on the scale, you'd be about this close to that murderer, and God would be 10 million miles down the road. All right? You have much more in common with that serial murderer than you do with God, apart from the blood of Christ. That's the truth. That's where we start to see our sin for what it really is. And when my dad finally started to realize that, that, that a murderer could be forgiven, that someone who had done something horrible and awful to people could be truly forgiven, it's when, I, at least for myself, I started, I started to realize that he was having a grasp of what the gospel really was about. Because if you don't believe that, you don't understand the power of the gospel. You don't understand Christ's sacrifice for sins. He came to die for the sins of men, right? Not just the really nice little ones, if there is such a thing, but all of them. Name a sin that Christ did not die for, right? So here we are, each one of us. What are we going to do with our sin? Judgment has come on Edom. God will judge us if we don't have a Savior if Jesus is not taking our place, if we're not covered by the blood of the Lamb, we need a Savior. And here Jesus is today offering you from His Father eternal life. 
He calls all men to repent. That's what Acts 17 talks about. God calls all to repent and turn to him. And that call is for each one of us to repent and turn to the Lord. What does Acts say earlier? It's a great verse. So that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Anyone who's a believer can attest to the sweetness of the refreshment of having Jesus in your life, of having Jesus wipe away your sins, of having Jesus cover your sins. It truly is a beautiful thing. And that's offered to everyone here today to trust. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. I encourage you, I exhort you today, let today be the day of salvation for you. Let's pray. Lord, you and you alone know the hearts of men. And you know each person's heart here. You know the saved ones and the unsaved ones. For those saved, Lord, that need to get right with you, may they do that now and repent. For those not saved, God, may they heed the word today, repent and turn to you. May they trust in you. May they bend the knee, Lord, humbly come before you, ask you to forgive them of their sins. Do that work, Lord, I ask. Thank you that you are a God that is righteous and just. Thank you that you are a God that has steadfast love and faithfulness and pours out, out upon us time and time again. Thank you that you're not just our great God and King, but you are our Heavenly Father. You truly are an amazing Father. I pray you'd reveal yourself to people, Lord. Those that don't know you, show them who you are that they might see you clearly, and that they might repent and turn to you. Do your work, Lord, as only you can. We pray this with the authority you give us in Jesus. Amen.